Alright, uh, today we're going to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, I'm just going to read two verses. The chapter, the argument of the chapter is uh, part of a whole, and so uh, I'll try to go through the chapter as we speak about. But let me just, I think the key point here is in chapter uh, 9, verse 11 and 12. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. He says we've obtained eternal redemption by what Christ has done. And what I want to do is argue today that this chapter read wrongly would support Calvin's doctrine of penal substitution. And this is the idea that Christ's death was primarily to pay a penalty for us that we could not pay. And I want to argue that uh, that it is the entire course of the life of Christ, his life, death, resurrection. I've been saying this all along, and this is the argument of Hebrews, but especially as we come to chapter 9, this is where many people who would argue for penal substitution, they would turn to chapter 9. But I think even in chapter 9, we would say that, no, actually the atonement, the saving work of Christ, as it says here, is when he enters the most holy place. And the question is, when does he do that? When does he obtain this atonement for us? And I think it's at his resurrection and his ascension that he begins the work of high priest that we're saved. And this will make a world of difference in how we understand our Christianity. Uh, Because it is the entire life course of Christ, and it is our entire life course, our life as we follow Christ, our life as we take up the cross of Christ, our life as we live out the resurrection, rather than focus simply on the death of Christ, which will very often just give us a kind of magical understanding. Oh, well, this is an exchange that takes place between the Father and the Son, and it's not inclusive of us. But if we take it and see that, no, it's actually the the life course of Christ and our own life course that salvation then occurs, it's going to give us a very different tenor for the meaning of Christianity. The first thing to note is that the, you know, he does this in the beginning of the chapter, is that the difference between the two temples and their work is on the basis of two different covenants. One is earthly and one is heavenly. And by heavenly, we have the idea, you know, you can think of this in a kind of vertical understanding that what is taking place on earth simultaneously takes place in heaven. There may be that, but part of this is that Christ in his ascension passes into the presence of God and brings the earthly and heavenly together. He says that the earthly is a shadow and the other, the heavenly, is the reality. And I think that's the key thing, is that when we think of the 
earthly tabernacle, it's not just that it was here on earth, but it was the fact uh, that it was a shadow. It was a pair, you know, a kind of illustration. He uses the word paradigm. Uh, and so I'm reading this, I think, in a more literal sense, uh, in that Jesus' ascension is the point at which he appears in heaven at the right hand of God and that he begins his priestly ministry. Hebrews compares these two temples then, uh, and he goes through, you know, and the passage that we even read this morning in Sunday school in Jeremiah, <coughs> he's just quoted this in chapter 8, that what is being worked out in the uh, heavenly temple in Christ is a change of heart, that the law will be written on your heart, that your characters will be changed up. He says about the first that there's regulations for worship, uh, that there is a sanctuary, but the difference between the two is uh, the tabernacle and the temple, uh, and and between the Christ as the true temple, is the difference in the covenant and the difference in the place. He says in nine two that the tent is constructed, the temple, the heavenly temple, is not made with human hands. Uh, it's made by God. The first was filled with, you know, he goes through all the possessions, the golden altar, the incense, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, holding Aaron's rod, the manna, and the cherubim, you know, the, the two angels on the side of the uh, Ark of the Covenant <coughs> over the mercy seat. But he says about Christ that it is he appears in the eternal temple to offer himself at the place of atonement. And the idea here is not just that he offers his death, but he offers all that he is. He is the mediator in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Because the first covenant has an earthly constructed temple, the sacrifices at the place of atonement, he says, must be repeated again and again, which the high priest does once a year. The difference of the heavenly temple that is that Christ does this continually. It's not, uh, uh, you know, he's not replaced as high priest. And these verses seem to indicate that the way into the Holy of Holies, uh, God, which is God's presence, is not made known. We don't understand it in the first tent. And what, we, what I would say here is, well, what is it that Christ does that makes this way known. And the writer has talked again and again about, well, it's his indestructible life, it's his resurrection life, it's his ascension uh, that makes the way into the heavenly holy of holies. Uh, The idea is that with the ascension, the access to God, which the first temple indicated, is now granted. And so we have horizontally and what I mean here is that often people picture the cross as the place that all of this happens so that it's a purely vertical you know relationship but I think what he's describing is we've entered into a new age that that old earthly temple is no longer legitimate in this Christian age that Christ has made God available to us in the new eschaton in the end of the age 
He says in Hebrews 9, 8 to 9, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed with the outer tab- uh, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time, meaning we're passing into a new age. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. But he says now, in verse 10, we've come, and he uses the word reformation. We've come to a time of reformation. We've come to a time of change. Uh, And now we do have access. The, The conscience is cleansed. Last time you remember, I argued that the idea here is not that the earthly is a copy of the heavenly, but the earthly is a foreshadowing, a temporal foreshadowing. It's like uh, 1 Peter 3.21, you know, the word here is type. Paul will also use this word. And the idea is that it's a, there is a correspondence between the events of the sacred past and the present, And there is a continuity between God's action in past, present, and future. And that, so that there is this sense that Christ is bringing that together horizontally. Because Christ enters the eternal temple and is crowned with glory, his death never needs to be repeated again. That is, he has an enduring life. The writer argues, you know, It is present today. Now is the time of salvation. The Sabbath is a continual Sabbath that is available to us because Christ is continually interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. His body becomes, in 10.10, the perfect offering. He is a temple substitute. Christ is doing in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, all that the temple pointed to. It is the means, not simply that, you know, that he, he died and this happened, but it is where he now mediates and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. I think that's specifically referring to the ascension. So Jesus discloses in himself the being and nature of the true God. That's what the temple was supposed to do, right? Jesus accomplishes the purposes, all of the purposes of the temple. Remember, we refer to the church as the body of Christ. Here is the true temple in which we are worshiping. Yahweh was expected to return to the temple in Jerusalem. And this is what Jesus says when he enters the temple, you know, that God has come to his temple. Uh, That Jesus' actions then are a substitute for the temple And I think this idea gives coherence to the writer of Hebrews. So with with, uh, the arrangements of the temple, the holy place, you know, the holy of holies, we shouldn't get the wrong idea here. It's not that in heaven there is a limited access to God or even that we have a limited access. The heavenly temple in Hebrews is, is not simply the archetype, you know, of a copy so that in heaven there's the holy place and then there's the in, in rather it refers to the eschatological dwelling of God with his people the temple that God was expected to build in the last days you know this is the prediction in Jeremiah and in Daniel it has been built the temple is the body of Christ 
And this is the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands, but made by God. That is not of this creation or of human creation. The Lord has pitched it and not a human. So it is by means of the new order, by means of offering of himself, and not by means of animal sacrifice, that Christ entered to the heavenly realms obtaining eternal redemption. Now the Holy Spirit plays a key role in chapter 9. Uh, but in 9.14, Christ neither offers nor sprinkles his blood, as did the high priest. He offers himself to God, and this is key. Because it's all of himself, and he does this through the eternal spirit. He offered himself without blemish to God. And the picture is this penetrates to the Holy of Holies. He sits down at the right hand. But it's also the penetration of the human conscience. That we're, our conscience is cleansed as he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So the really of effective a barrier to our free access to God is an inward barrier. It's not a material barrier. It exists, as we discussed this morning, in our conscience. And it's only when the conscience is purified that one is set free to approach God without reservation and to offer him acceptable service and worship which is our service, which is, you know, we too become priests in the book of Hebrews. And this is the only place in the New Testament that the Spirit's agency is connected to Christ's priestly office or to the work of atonement, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And of course we get the picture here that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us to cleanse our conscience. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit uh, just as Christ is the body, the temple that we inhabit. So who, he through the eternal spirit accomplished these things. The heavenly tent then, it's not reached vertically at the cross but horizontally through the inauguration of this eschatological age is a resurrected, ascended presence at the right hand of God is the focus. And so this is not in any way, I don't mean to take away from the death of Christ, but to put his death in a sequence of events in which the atonement or our you know, transformation as First Peter and Hebrews are talking about, our participation in the Godhead takes place. In chapter 9, I didn't read all this, but he uses the, the illustration of a testament or will. And here he clearly, he does have death in mind. In the realm of wills and testaments, death is the key. The point here is that a will does not go into effect uh, until the one who has made it dies. And in an analogous way, he notes that the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. Animals were slaughtered when the covenant was inaugurated. And similarly, the new covenant has a death, that of Jesus, at its inauguration. But then he moves on uh, after this to talk about, the, uh, you know, from testaments and wills back into talking about covenant. Remember that the first covenant was established with Abraham 
And Isaac then is pictured as taking up Mount Moriah. You know, the picture is that here is one completely dedicated to God. And this is the idea that Jesus' death, it's not the slaughter of Christ or his death on the cross, uh, but it's Jesus' blood or his life. The blood is representative of his life. The Holy of Holies, you know, the one thing that was uh, never brought into contact with the, the holy place of the Holy of Holies was, was death. It was to be cleansed of death. The blood was representative of life. And it's representative of a life dedicated to God, which saves. That was Isaac fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus' death can be seen as part of a larger uh, sacrificial act. A sacrificial death is, is one point, but it's the entire movement that the atonement is, is worked out. And so the presentation of blood of the life of the person of Jesus is the means of the atonement. If you think back to the Holy of Holies, the manipulation of the blood is the center of the process. It's not just that the animal is killed and oh well now we have atonement. No, it was the manipulation of the blood, the putting of the blood on the various parts of the altar uh, and that uh, is the means in in and through which atonement is attained. So sacrifice is made, you know, it's not just a slaughter, but the meaning of it is determined by what happens to the blood after the death when the blood is presented to God. When was Christ's blood sacrifice presented to God? I believe it was at his resurrection and ascension that he presents his life to God. Um, The death of Jesus should be understood then uh, as part of the process that puts into motion the sequence of events that culminates in Jesus' offering, his continual offering, elevated, you know, the picture is elevated to the throne at God's right hand. And now at the consummation of the ages, he says in 26 to 28, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ has also been offered once to bear the sins of many. And so the writer's earlier claims that Jesus is no longer subject to death drives this, the, the logic of the argument. That is, the argument of 926 works on the premise that after Jesus died, he rose to an indestructible life. He cannot die again. Therefore, Jesus cannot suffer multiple times. Uh, After suffering, he rose to perfection. And so the idea here, he's no longer subject to death. There is this once and for all character of his offering. And it's bound up then with his resurrection. And so the logic of repeatable offerings in the way of contrast is linked to death. So the death, suffering of Jesus can be seen to be the event that puts into motion the process, life, death, resurrection, ascension, that achieves atonement. The suffering of Jesus leads to his resurrection, an event that makes it possible or impossible for him to die again. 
In other words, his is not just a resuscitation like Lazarus, but he's raised up to an indestructible life. His resurrection means that he's crossed over into the existence that characterizes the age, the eschatological age of resurrection, which we've entered into. Entering heaven, he appeared before God in verse 24 and 26 and obtained atonement. So his death is, is the, you know, it sets the sequence into motion. His appearance before God in heaven subsequent to his death affects the atonement. And the bridge between the ascension and the death is what? Well, it's the resurrection. Uh, so Hebrews uses the, the three terms to depict Christ's offering. Body, blood, and self. Jesus' death has typically been understood as the unifying concept behind those three descriptors. To spiritualize it in the way that Calvinists and many Protestants do, or to moralize these terms by simply appealing to Jesus' death, uh, it doesn't. The concepts don't hold together. It doesn't. It misconstrues. I think the Book of Hebrews. He can speak about Jesus' heavenly offering as body, blood, and self because he conceives of Jesus as rising bodily from the dead, ascending bodily into God's heavenly presence where Jesus can present himself alive before God. And so the unifying point behind each of these terms is the indestructible life that Jesus mediates to us in our resurrection life. Jesus' indestructible human life is what he brings into God's presence and offers as the sacrifice. And so Jesus is doing in heaven what the high priest did annually on earth. He continues this high priestly ministry. He enters into God's presence in the, you know, that's the meaning of the Holy of Holies. And Jesus entered the, in the fullest sense uh, into God's presence. You know, this is the heavenly holy of holies. So don't think of it as someplace distant, because God's presence then is, you know, the, the place that God is, that heaven and earth are going to be brought together in Christ. Jesus presented his offering and then sat down at the right hand of the Most High. And so Jesus' death certainly precedes his exaltation at the right hand, uh, having already risen and descended into heaven, uh, and it's there in God's presence that he, you know, in God's throne in the heavenly and holy of holies, that he presents his offering to God. It's all that he is. It's his self. It's his body. It's his raised body. And his blood is representative of that. So uh, the image is the same as at 1.3. After making purification for sins, he sat down. He remains on that throne in heaven, awaiting his enemies to be subjected, awaiting for the, you know, that they would be the, the footstool under his feet. And so the, what I'm arguing here is that the attempt to conflate the high priestly activity of Jesus simply with his death on the cross, I think it unduly spiritualizes what is actually straightforward language here when he claims that Jesus was not a, you know, he says Jesus was not a priest or a high priest on earth in 8.4. 
He goes on to stress that Jesus made his atoning offering before God in the heavenly tabernacle. Jesus died on earth, but he carries out his atoning work in heaven. So his belief in Jesus' bodily resurrection and ascension, I think this is quite literally what he means here, that Jesus was only qualified to become high priest subsequent to his resurrection. Only after this event was he further able to enter into God's presence and into heaven to offer his atonement there. So Hebrews' sacrificial language, I think, becomes problematic. The history of this, you know, maybe we blame it on Anselm, but maybe it's primarily uh, Calvin. Uh, But this becomes part of American fundamentalism. I don't know if you've noticed that the Southern Baptists have just recently included penal substitution as one of the pillars of the Southern Baptist understanding. Um, That is that uh, this particular... What I'm saying is a mistaken understanding of the atonement. Uh, For many theologians, pastors, and believing Christians, the two have become linked. And I think that uh, what it does, uh, it makes of God's sacrifice, you know, the, the whole focus is on the anger of God, and God, you know, Christ is the focus of that anger, and so Christ substitutes in our place. Um, and for some this is the proof that Hebrews you know it says that under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins there's the key verse Um, and for many this just teaches penal substitutionary atonement Uh, but I think it's an inadequate account of how Christ saves Uh, a death that redeems does not mean, you know, certainly Christ's death is redemptive. Even Anselm of Canterbury recognized Christ's death, though, is the indirect effect of his obedience. He's completely obedient to God. Death itself does not redeem. Christ's obedience does unto death. Christ, we could even say, is a substitute. But what is he a substitute for? He's a substitute for the Levitical priesthood and its sacrificial system. Christ does offer himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf. We can use that language. But he does so in order to bring an end to sacrifice. Does it teach penal substitution? Is God the primary agent who demands that Christ suffers and dies? That's the question. And is God the recipient of the sacrifice? In other words, does does God will the death of an innocent person in order to redeem us and then find that death acceptable? This is the most controversial, I think, part of penal substitution and of fundamentalist teaching. Many see in it a return to paganism. The idea of a propitiation, there's an angry God and God's anger has to be in some way propitiated. It's a return to the idea of a vengeful deity in which human blood must be used to assuage his anger. 
But for Hebrews, Jesus' suffering and death are not first and foremost an offering to God, but his participation, this is chapter 2, in our enslavement to death is the means by which he frees us from death. He shares our humanity, it says, to the point of death, but he does so in such a way that he overcomes death. When does he overcome death? You know, this is chapter 5. He prays you know, that he might be delivered from death. Was he delivered? Yes, at his resurrection. And it is this faithfulness unto death that overcomes fear and the, the, the fear that enslaves, you know, the fear of death that enslaves, that makes him high priest of a new covenant and also allows for, for his self-offering to God. So he makes this offering in the heavenly tabernacle. It's not just Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, but it is his faithfulness, his obedience, that overcomes death by taking it upon himself and thereby destroying the power of the devil, who for Hebrews is the one who has the power of death. So it's Jesus' completed work that he offers to God. He offers it on our behalf. But not on behalf of God. We are the ones who benefit. Not God's anger that is assuaged, but our fear of death, our enslavement to sin that is undone. So Jesus' death in Hebrews, it, it, it is connected to sacrificial language. Here in 9.15, we'll come to this later in 13.12, but it's not necessary to assume that death per se is identified with redemption. Death is the final enemy that is overcome. Jesus' death, we can say, resulted in redemption being obtained because without his death, None of the other events, you know, his life, his resurrection, his ascension would follow. So where there is no resurrection, these things don't quit, uh, qualify. He's not qualified to be a high priest. He's not elevated to the heavenly throne. There would be no ascension and no presentation of his blood in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus could not make any atoning offering if he had not died. Just, and this is when we did the Yom Kippur, the sacrifice of atonement, uh, you know, it's the two goats. You understand that one of the goats is not sacrificed, that he's released into the wilderness bearing sin. The other goat is sacrificed as a symbol of a life dedicated to God. And so slaughter or death is not itself sufficient nor is it the center of, of atonement even in the Old Testament. So uh, in Yom Kippur, uh, that it indicated that as with you know the picture of Isaac, it's a life dedicated to God. So with this larger understanding of how sacrifice works, then we can read, go back to Hebrews and we see the writer is referring to different parts of the life, death, resurrection of Christ. Uh, but he's not conflating Jesus' death and atonement. So it's not that blood and, you know, it, it sometimes does refer simply to death. But when he's talking about Yom Kippur, he's talking about the death in the temple. Blood there refers to something much more than simply slaughter or death. And so Hebrews expands upon the mechanics of the process of sacrifice 
He's showing us how Christ is the high priest, how he fulfills the temple. He's not denying the importance of Jesus' death in effecting salvation, but he's clarifying where that event fits in a larger process. So my main point in this rather complicated argument, he does not conflate the atoning moment with the cross, and neither should we. He locates Jesus' death at the front end of a, prom- of a, of a process that culminates in that atonement, atoning moment, which is a continuous final age. So Hebrews unites both deification, participation in the, the Godhead and atonement in its understanding of Christ as priest and victim who heals in, you know, he frees us from enslavement through his self-offering. And in this, it takes seriously the incarnation, the life of Christ as model. It takes seriously the crucifixion. It takes seriously the resurrection. And so you cannot understand the, the atoning work of Christ simply by focusing on one part of that process. 